Well, good morning. We'll be in... That was really weak. Good morning. That wasn't just... Yeah, there we go. There we go. There are people here. That's good to see. Uh, We are in a series called Breaking Free, and today we're looking at the barriers and the blinders that we have that we might not even see know that we have. So we'll be starting in Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. It says, Before the coming of this faith, we were held custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there is male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. Amen. Just take a moment and let that sink below the surface. Maybe even get the very, very long 18 inches from your head down to your heart. Father, would you take this word that is not just a book but is living and active and would you use it to change our lives? to let us hear you and see you more clearly, to speak to us about where we are seeing correctly and where we are um, needing correction. Help us to see you rightly and hear what you want us to hear today. In your name, amen. Well, I don't know if you've been following the very late and great music an artist icon prince, but his, the absence of his last will and, and testament has really helped put a spotlight on what it means to be family. Maybe you know that several of his family have come forward claiming to be family. Some of those people haven't seen him in years. Some of those people who have seen him really haven't had close and personal encounters with him. Um, and then there is at least one who said that, you know, Prince called me his brother, and so even though we didn't share the same DNA, even though we don't have a legal adoption status, you know, I should still be considered family. And so, you know, my daughters should be part of that. Now, Prince's presumptive heirs, they're not so willing to share this status of family. But what do you think it would mean for his girls, this Duane, um, for his girls to be in Prince's family? Like, why would they be, well, no, let's just not, let's not interpret, let's not assume. What would it mean if they became family? Financial security, yeah, like 100 to 300 million is his estate, you know, somewhere in there, plus all the things they don't know. Mm. Status? Money, status? Sure, popularity. Is it safe to say that their entire lives would be different? Now, how much more if we understood what it meant to be in God's family? I mean, Prince, after all, is only worth, what, 
100 million, 300 million. His musical legacy has only lasted for generations and will probably continue to last. So how much more if we understood what it meant to be in God's family? I, I mean, I really truly believe that there is nothing more beautiful than a family that gets it right. But I also know there's nothing more painful than a family that gets it wrong. And I hear story after story of families at their worst. And Jesus actually wants us to break free of this definition of family. I mean, he did it when he said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers in Matthew 12? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus was actually transforming the definition of family long before his death and his resurrection. He actually calls his church to be his family. So maybe there's nothing more beautiful than God's church at their best. And maybe there's nothing more painful than God's church at its worst. So we're going to spend a few minutes thinking about that idea of what it means to be God's family. Because I believe this, this passage of Galatians is actually calling us to transform our thinking about this way we do family. And if we could get a little bit closer to God's beautiful family, the way that he, I think, calls and intends us to be, we would start to see the transformation that, that these two um, girls of Prince's brother want in their lives in a whole much bigger way. So in Galatians it says, so in Christ Jesus you are all children of God. Think the thing that the Spirit of God is trying to get across to us to consider and and maybe accept is the fact that we're all God's kids. It might sound simple, you might have even heard the phrase before, oh, isn't it great that we're all God's children? I actually don't know if that's fully true. I think the essence of it is, yes, we're all created in the image of God. But John says that to all who believe and receive Jesus, those are the ones he calls and gives the right to be called children of God. And John continues later in his life in 1 John 3. He says, see what great love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. It's this idea that when we accept God's love for us, that's actually when we have the standing of children. We're not just all God's children because we're all humans. We're all humans because we're all created in the image of God. God loves everyone, but not everyone knows that they are God's children. See, to be God's children would mean to accept the name that he's given us. It would be to accept the home that he's given us. It would be to accept the way that God sees family as the way that we see family. Not the other way around. So many of us put on God what came from our families or the families around us. So if our mother or father was harsh, then we think that God is harsh. If our mother or father was someone who got angry really easily, then we think God gets angry really easily. But the more and more I read this book, the more I understand just how 
passionately and unconditionally. God loves all of us. I mean, it was that in this moment after God had rescued these people called the, uh, the Hebrews out of Egypt. And he says, okay, we're just gonna, we're gonna say, we're gonna start to understand what it means to be in my family. I'm paraphrasing. So there's gonna be a few house rules. Like, don't have any other gods before me. I am the Lord your God who called you out of Egypt. So don't make any idols. Don't put anything else in the place of God that you think would represent power or that would represent value or would change your life. Don't do that. Just love and honor me and love each other and we'll be okay. I mean, that's in essence the Ten Commandments. And then just right after that, they're like, oh, well, where's Moses? Because he's been talking to God. I know, we'll bring all our gold and we'll make an idol and we'll pray to this idol. I mean, it's just almost instantaneous. And they do. And God eventually forgives them. In that moment is when Moses is like, this is so hard, God. Can I just have a glimpse of the favor If I have any favor in your mind, God, can I just have a glimpse? And when he does, he is completely blown away. He says, the Lord, the Lord who is full of compassion and mercy, the Lord who is slow to anger and forgiving to thousands of generations. That's the picture that Moses has in this moment. Right after, right after the people have gone against the very few things that God said. If we just understood a little bit, a little bit. So one of the ways that I've asked God to help me understand this is by observing people. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a people watcher. I'm not a stalker, but I am a people watcher. And, and honestly, when I see parents of toddlers, gosh, I smile and pray for you. Because anyone that does not have like giant bags under their eyes from all the physical exhaustion that those cute little buggers suck out of you, I mean, it is, it just causes me to be speechless. But I'm told, I'm told, and I think as I'm looking out, some of you can verify this, that it gets better, okay? Some of you have adult children, and you have said to me, you've said, oh, there's, I mean, that, that age is sweet, but there's nothing. There's nothing like having adult kids. I mean, adult kids that, that get it. Adult kids that you can have adult-to-adult conversation with. Adults, kids that you can share your hopes and dreams and fears and pain with, kind of as friends. Where you can see them making good choices and giving good to others. I mean, it's one thing on Mother's Day to, to think about if you, if you have the privilege or burden of having children, I mean that, um, to see them do well when they're young. But it, it's, a completely, it's a completely different thing to see those kids grown doing well for others, doing good for others. So that picture of the toddler who, you know, outside of sticking the raisin box in the cassette player or... Um, of a really old vehicle or shiny things in the toilet. Outside of that, there's not much that they can really do wrong because you think about all the steps they're taking, literally and figuratively. 
in their development, and you just have joy over those things, the simple things. That's, that's part of the picture that God has for you, those, the joy in the simple things. Like, there's a phrase that says, God doesn't have any grandkids, meaning you have to accept him as your father. And I, I, I get that, but I think, no, God must have the feeling of grandkids, because as a parent, you, you treat kids different than you do as a grandparent. Can I get some head nods from the grandparents? Yes? Okay. And a chuckle, I see, and a smile, right? That's the kind of multifaceted love that God has. Like, not only does he love us as his kids, but he loves us as his grandkids. He has, if maybe God would have pictures of us on his refrigerator, the drawings that we've made where we went way outside the lines, there's nothing that we can do to make God love us more. There's nothing we can do to make God love us less. God loves us unconditionally. And we have to see, if we want to be God's beautiful family, we've got to see that we are all, you are all God's children. You are all the children of God. It doesn't mean God's going to take care of you, like spoon feed you or clean up after you. He, he sees you as a responsible, grown son or daughter. Someone he can laugh with and cry with and be with, give responsibility to, say well done. He's someone that probably does have a picture up and had that measuring stick and the little tick marks on the wall of watching you grow, but not just physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. And he, he loves you. Some of us, we, in order to really get this though, we need to confess the twisted images that we have of God. A God who's harsh. Or a God who holds us to a standard that we can never attain. Or a God who has a frown on his face when he sees us. A God we know will never live up to. We need to confess that. The story of the prodigal son continues to change my view of God because in that story, Jesus tells a story about a younger son who demands an inheritance and then skips out on town, abandons the farm, if you will. And he could have been gone months, he could have been gone weeks, but it finally happens that he becomes so desperate and destitute that he says, you know, if I could just return home as a hired servant, life would be better. And so while he's a long way off, he goes home. And, and there, as a speck, becomes a dot, becomes a blob, becomes a man, his dad is looking on the horizon. And when he sees him, he runs, the text says, and he embraces him, and he kisses him. Jewish men do not run. Jewish men do not kiss. But parents who unconditionally love their children, they run to them, and they kiss them, no matter what they've done and how far they've been away. And if your human parents have not done that, know that Jesus does that, that God does that for us. We're all God's children. This, this Christian mystic and author, uh, Richard Rohr, wrote, the first 
half of life is accepting that you are beloved by God. Have you accepted that you're beloved by God? That he has a glint and a grin when he sees you. And God's loving acceptance of you has nothing to do with your worthiness. Okay? If I haven't beat that enough this series, I'll just keep going. But the second reality that I think God is inviting us to consider is to accept this idea that you are all one in Christ. Galatians says, There is no, in Christ, there is no Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free nor male, nor female, for you are all one in Christ. In every culture of every religion, including Christianity, throughout time, the human tendency is to build divisions and barriers between people, especially ones we don't understand. We see it all throughout the Bible, yet we also see throughout the Bible God calling a man named Abraham, or Abram, way early in the story, Genesis 12, and he calls him to leave his father and his father's family, bring his wife, go across a desert, a wilderness, if you will, and go to this land called the Promised Land. God calls Moses to lead a people out of Egypt and across into the Promised Land. God calls his son to leave heaven and go down to earth. God throughout the Bible, is crossing divisions and barriers and borders to see people and reach people and extend his love to them, even those that the human people that claim him as their God exclude. See, the reality is that we are all common humans. When God started the story and we rejected him, there was no race. There was no religion. There was no social class or economic status. There was gender, but it was seen as equal and good image bearers of God. And from that moment in the story on, it's been a mess, to say the least. But Paul chose these categories, the writer of this letter chose these categories because they continue to embattle us, they continue to divide us to this day. And they were dividing the church at this time. The first one was race, Jew nor Gentile. Um, There's a story that you might know that Gandhi is considered the father of India, or modern day India. His His birthday was declared a national holiday in the country. And he studied law in England and then moved back to South Africa and to practice law, but maybe you don't know that uh, Gandhi actually became fascinated with truth. He, came, he confronted the system of apartheid, and he studied the Bible along with other religious texts, and he loved the Sermon on the Mount, and he seriously considered becoming a Christian, so much so that one Sunday he decided to go to church. And he went to this church in South Africa, and as he started to walk in the door, Gandhi had light brown skin, and somebody stopped him, and said, what do you think you're doing? Where do you think you're going, Kafir? Now, Kafir is like a very derogatory religious slur. And Gandhi said, I'd like to attend worship here. And the man said, there's no room for Kafirs here. If you don't leave, I will make you leave. Gandhi never seriously become 
never seriously considered becoming a Christian again. I don't know if we can blame them. I think it's one of the reasons that he may have this uh, famous quote attributed to him that says, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christ, your Christians are so unlike your Christ. See, the reality is that I'm asking us to consider what it means to say, you are all beloved of God, which doesn't just mean that we accept that we are beloved by God. It actually means that we have to extend that to everyone else. See, the full quote from Richard Rohr is the first half of life is to accept that I am beloved by God. The second half is to realize everyone else is too. And we've got to confront the divisions in our day and the divisions in our heart. There is no Jew nor Gentile. I wonder what India would have been like today if the church had responded like God's beautiful family. Which, as I read the scripture, is there's always room for one more. Come on in. Oh, you got some problems? So do we. Come on in. There is no racial division. The second is the socioeconomic status of slave nor free. Historians actually believe that the Roman Empire was filled with one-third of the people of the world as slaves. It was not based on skin color. It was not based on country of origin. It was simply an economic reality. There was stability in the Roman Empire. And so if you made yourself a slave, you could generally find work, generally find food, generally have protection and shelter. People were asking to be slaves even at certain times. Doesn't mean they were always treated well. Sometimes they were treated very harshly. But the Roman Empire was set up that none of these people that were slaves would interact with the people that were free. They had a class system, if you will. And the only place where they came together was after the resurrection in the church of Jesus. A slave and a free would worship side by side. You can go to this book called um, Philemon in the New Testament. It is a story, it is a letter written to a slave owner to receive back his slave who ran away, who'd become a Christian, to receive him back, but also to treat him as his Christian brother. It's a phenomenal letter. It challenges how we view the status of our day. If we, not saying that the the Civil War and the American slavery isn't important. It's an unbelievable, huge piece of our history that I don't want to ignore. But if we can put that slavery aside and understand that this slavery is much more like if we judge someone if they shop at Walmart or if they shop at Target or if they buy their clothes at Old Navy or if they buy their clothes at Banana Republic. If they bank here or if they bank here, if they have a six-figure income, or if they are currently unemployed. See, we are all one in Christ. What do you need to do in your own heart to see those divisions of status removed?
Finally, gender. In Christ, there is no male nor female. It's not saying that there is no difference. It's not saying that, there is, that that difference doesn't matter. What it is saying is there is no division and there is no hostility. Do you know that, according to historians, every good Jewish man would pray this prayer in the morning? God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, that I am not a, or God, I thank you that you did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And in much of the Middle East, you probably know that there are still huge divisions between men and women. Women can't drive. They can't vote. I don't think they can choose their clothing. And the teachers in this region of Galatia were just trying to say, let's keep a few of those cultural norms in the church. Let's not rock the boat in those ways. It worked for these number of years. Let's let it keep working. That may mean things get messier for us, but I think it means we've got to lean in and wonder what that means for us in our day and age, where there's not only gender differences, but then there's also gender confusion. How can we be a place that says, you are all one in Christ? doesn't mean we don't see differences. We're not saying ignore the differences. We're not saying erase them or pretend we're blind to them, because that's just a different form of racism or sexism, or whatever-ism. It's saying that those things should not come first. They should probably not even come second. But our first loyalty is to Jesus before anything else. If I am a Christian, then we are one in Christ. Even if, you're, even if you vote different than me, even if you have different skin color than me, even if you have a different background than me, even if you have a different language than me, even if you say words that I don't like very much, all of those things fall down the list because we are one in Christ. Which means that we have full equality with other believers. This isn't just something to accept, it's something to extend. And we could be God's beautiful family better if we extended that to each other. I mean, Revelation does say that at the end of the world, all of the nations, all of the tribes, all of the people will approach the throne and will worship Jesus. There will be no divisions. Finally, I think the third truth that we're invited to consider is this, from this verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. If, if we are Abraham's seed, then Abraham's promise is our promise. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. You are all blessed to be a blessing. It means that just as something comes into my life, I share it with someone else. It means these, this reality that I am beloved by God means that I extend the reality that you are too. And the story throughout so much of the Bible is they love to be blessed by God, but they didn't exactly love to bless others. They like to say, God, keep blessing us. No, we don't want to go out to that person. No, we don't want to help that other country. No, we don't want to see that work happen. We might run out of funds. We might run out of soldiers. We might run out of 2,000 or 4,000 years old, and it's still the same things that we're saying today. See, the reason 
why I think God calls us blessed to be a blessing is because there are still so many divisions. There are still so many hurts. Some of them are just in our own homes. They're miscommunications. They're missed opportunities. They're broken promises. They're broken dreams. And yet, this God is a God of restoration. This God is a God of forgiveness. This God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. This is the God who looks out on the horizon to see if his kids will come home and welcomes that back in. And when we get upset and want to take our party away like the older brother in the story of the prodigal, he comes out to us too and says, please join the party. There's room for one more. When we're blessed to be a blessing, the church is at its best. And and how this could look in your life might look a little bit like a guy named Fred Rogers. I don't know how many of you remember Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Anyone? Anyone? If you're under 35, it might be, might be a little harder. But yes, okay, thank you guys. Good, good. Fred Rogers was a um, smart guy. He was also an ordained minister. He, he actually did the show for four or five years in Canada and got to direct it. And then they brought it... Mr. Rogers became Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood in America. The third year that Mr. Rogers was on television, he was singing at church, Fred was, and he heard this beautiful voice, this booming, gentle, but melodic voice. And he walked over to this guy named Francois Clemens, and he said, Francois, I got this idea. You should be a police officer in my show in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Now, Francois was like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, see, because Francois was African-American. He grew up in the ghetto, and he remembers having policemen sick dogs on him in 1965 and 66 and 67 and 68. So when Fred came up to him in 69 and said, you know, come and be on my show. He's, he's got all these memories of the dogs getting sick, the hoses on people, the police brutality. Did I mention it's 1969 in the story, not 2016 or 17? He's like, I, I don't know if I can be a police officer. Fred was like, no, I think this could be really good. You could be a friendly neighborhood police officer. Your voice is so gentle, it's so melodic. I think you should consider this. Well, the other part of the story is that Fred was taking a giant risk. There was not one African-American that had a recurring role on a kid's program in 1969. And he was inviting Francois to take that role, which he did. For 25 years, Officer Clemens was on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And the reason I get a little emotional about it is because StoryCorps did, did an interview with Francois, and he said, you know, of all those shows, of all the ones I saw, and I was a part of, there's one that I can't forget. It was the one where it was, it was a hot day, and Fred, Mr. Rogers, I still can't say that, he took his shoes and socks off, and he put his feet in a kitty plastic pool. And he was just sitting there in a lawn chair, and he invited Officer Clemens to take his shoes off, put his feet in the pool with him. This is the first time on television in 1969 that there was 
black skin feet and white skin feet in a pool together, sharing communion, if you will, as friends. And they were. They were friends. And then Fred, in his ever so Mr. Rogers way, I can't even remember the quote, but I've got so many of the shows still in my mind. On that day, at the end of the show, or after they got out of the tub, Fred dried Francois's feet first. And then he put his shoes on, and as he took off his sweater, and he said the little ditty, which was, you make every day a special day by being you. And I like you just the way you are. Except this time, in particular, Francois noticed that Fred was looking right at him. He walked over after the show got done and said, Fred, were you looking at me? No, he said, Fred, were you talking to me? And Fred smiled and said, Francois, I've been talking to you for years. You just heard me today. That, friends. I mean, Francois' words to StoryCorp were, that day changed my life. That day was special because what I heard was, I'm okay as a human being. I have validity as a human. God loves me, and I don't have to change. I don't have to change my behavior, but I don't have to change things I can't change. Because maybe some of you are sitting here today going, I can't change some of the things in my life. You don't understand. I've never done, I've never not done this behavior. This is just, it's like asking me to change the color of my skin. I can't do that. God isn't asking you to do it. He will change you by his spirit, but not by your effort. Some people are like Francois. They're just not going to believe it till you invite them into the kiddie pool and you tell them that you are one of God's kids. You are all one in Christ. You are blessed to be a blessing. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, the things that you think you can't contribute, God sees and goes, oh, we could have so much fun together. Will you invite the Spirit of God into his family. Invite the Spirit of God into your life to be part of his family, not only for your own blessings, but truly to bless the world. Will you pray with me? Father God, can we hear that you're a good, good Father? Can we hear, like Matthew prayed, that you are a good, good mother? That you are a perfect parent who, yes, sometimes will discipline us, but never out of spite, never out of anger. God, would we receive that in such a way that we would be transformed? More than a million-dollar inheritance, that we would live into our inheritance every day, that we would invite and see the rest of the world, the rest of the people in this room, the rest of the people in our lives as people who are beloved by you, who are one in you, and who are also blessed to be a blessing. God, let this change us. Let this day be marked as a day like Francois Clemens marked it. Thank you for people like Fred. People that continue to live out day in, day out, 
the reality that everyone created in your image deserves to know and receive your love. Amen.